Welcome to Disney's Four Scores. I'm John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. It's a pleasure to welcome an old friend to the podcast today. Nicholas Britell is a two-time Oscar nominee for Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk, an Emmy winner for his theme for Succession, and a multiple World Soundtrack Award winner for these and other projects. But today we want to talk about his music for the latest Disney movie, Cruella. Welcome, Nick. Hey, John. It's so good to be here. Nick, before we get into the specifics of scoring Cruella, talk to me about music in your childhood. Was it, was it always a part of your life? And, and at what point did you decide it was going to be your life? Well, interestingly for me, music really is sort of inextricably linked with film, actually. When I was five years old, I remember seeing Chariots of Fire. I went over to this little old upright piano in our apartment and tried to figure out how to play that amazing Vangelis theme. And I asked my mom for piano lessons. So, you know, how how or why, when we're at that age, we come to certain decisions or, or find our passions is as much of a mystery, <laughs> I think, as it, as it ever is. But, um, but yeah, I was completely entranced by music and the piano. And over the years, I really spent time thinking that I might be a concert pianist. That was actually, I was training classically early on. And then through high school, uh, I went to Juilliard for their pre-college division. Uh, where I studied piano performance and also... Do you still play? Oh, yeah. I'm the, I, I play on all the scores. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's always... Yeah, I know. I love playing. Piano is, is... It becomes a part of you. And actually, I feel it's almost like having a therapist in the house where you can go to the piano. You know, it, it, no matter what's happening, you can always go to the piano and it's there for you. And you can sort of turn the world off for a, a little bit. And I know my wife, Caitlin, who's a cellist, I know for both of us, it, music is kind of a form of meditation where you're just focused on sound and the physical act of playing. And yeah, so I, I play all the time. Tell us about your own personal history with Disney. Did you see 101 Dalmatians when you were a kid? I, of course, saw 101 Dalmatians and, uh, and lots and lots of Disney movies. I mean, actually, growing up, I remember some of my first film experiences were Disney in the 80s had these Disney Sunday movies that Michael Eisner would introduce at the at the top of the show and I, I remember watching lots and lots of those and and of course you know the classics I mean I think they were also affecting but I think musically Mary Poppins was probably the one that was at the most uh, affecting to me early on yeah so did, did you have to do any homework then before you started on Cruella I'm sort of curious if you saw the Glenn Close remakes <sighs> You know, I've seen many of these incarnations. I love doing a lot of research into my uh, into my projects, but I think in particular with Cruella, it's its own very, very unique take on Cruella DeVille. And it was really important in particular to get the tone and the aesthetic right for this because you know, knowing the history of this and knowing, for example, the very different POV of 101 Dalmatians, you're really taking this in, in a very different way and just on a musical level. The punk rock kind of 60s, 70s London that was very important to Craig Gillespie, our, our director, and was very important to the whole aesthetic of the film. From early on, Craig had told me about all of the, you know, classic rock tracks, uh, the needle drops that he wanted to have um, in very particular places throughout the film. So I think for me, it was really a question of how do, you know, how do you create this 
score, this this thematic universe for Corella, while also having it feel cohesive with these big rock tracks. Uh, so those are there's a, many layers of uh, of thinking through that I had to do. Yeah, and I want to go into all of that with you because it's all so interesting to me. The tone issue is particularly interesting because this is dark, but this is funny, you know, and it's all of that. But let me ask you, how did this project come to you? I know that you'd previously done another movie with Emma Stone, Battle of the Sexes. And I had this thing in the back of my head that, geez, maybe Emma asked for him. (laughs) <laughs> no, it was it didn't it didn't come through Emma Stone. Although I had I had such a fantastic experience working on Battle of the Sexes with the whole team there. Um, this actually came from Craig and and Sue Jacobs, our music supervisor. Um, they reached out to me quite a while ago, and and initially I wasn't going to be able to do the film. As we all know, many many plans have changed over the past eighteen months. <laughs> yes. So, um, and then uh, so many things actually were up in the air and 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 postponed that Corella became possible. And initially, you know, it was it was remote. We had some early conversations about the types of things Greg was looking for. And as you know, I like to do a lot of demoing early on. I think it's it's important to get a sense as early as possible of not just the range of things that you might want to do, but also kind of like the literal sound of things because the nuance of the sound is so important. And especially with something like we're talking about here with where it's where there's there's such a strong aesthetic. I think even the various shades of kind of edginess or darkness in the sound or the type of instrumentation or even the the era and the vintage of the amps you're using can make a huge difference in the sound and all of a sudden you know what sounds like 1970 rock starts to sound like 1980 rock and then you're not then it's not working you know so I actually in it was July July of last year I think it was yeah July and August I did some of my first experiments in long distance recording we booked Abbey Road Studio 2 the you know legendary room where like the Beatles recorded and um, and we hooked up a, a program called Audio Movers uh, which is really remarkable it allows you to essentially have a virtual real time connection to what the mixing room and the, the is hearing so I was in New York, and uh, these amazing musicians were in London, and, and I wrote about four or five initial experimental ideas, and we just started recording them, and we had a blast. So that was that was really fun. <laughs> and, and did any of that early experimentation wind up in the score or elements of it? Some of them did not. <laughs> Some of them, you know, and that's also, uh, as, as you know from talking to me in the past, what doesn't work is sometimes even more helpful than than what does work, actually. Now that we have our Cruella score album released, I can pinpoint the track Goodbye Estella, which is really the sort of final narration in the film. That narration track was one of my early elements of my early demos there, actually. And that was actually one of the first things that Craig heard. And I remember he called and he said, that's, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Oh, great. That's great. So to step back for a second, is your job to define the character musically? It's a few different things. I think the first thing is really every film is different. Every project is different. And so I think it's crucial to really start from zero with everything. 
to deal with what is in front of you and to talk to the director, the directors, about their perspective, what they're hoping for. Character, the sound of character is definitely important, but I think mood and tone, just in a bigger picture sense. Also, thinking about architecture is is crucial. For me, this was a very new kind of a challenge, actually, figuring out how to both create a sense of character and scope and evolution, but also making sure that when you transitioned between a classic rock song and the score that it didn't feel like you were all of a sudden in a totally different movie. I think the key was to feel like you were still in this world and that the goal then was to make sure that we were tying things together in a way that the 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 rock songs on their own couldn't do, hopefully. So a lot of this movie takes place in the 70s and there's very much of kind of a punk vibe to it. Did that inform already what kind of instruments you would need and what kind of sound you would create to blend, as it were, with the songs that were obviously already there. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the, I think that's one of the most fun things about every film project is getting a sense of instrumentation. People often talk about all these different things, like, like there's orchestration and then there's composition, and as if these things are sort of separate creatures, and they really aren't, in my opinion, you know? I mean, it all has to go together. And oftentimes the choice of instruments can be one of the most, if not the most important factor in the sound of something. You know, the same piece of music played with a saxophone or played with a Telecaster with a, with a cool old amp, it's gonna sound very different. <laughs> so, you know, those same notes do not sound the same when, you, when you're really dealing with them differently and different, and even just down to performance, it changes so much. Figuring out within those aesthetics, thinking about, okay, what's British rock sound like in the early 70s and the 60s? I mean, the 60s and 70s in London were some of the most fascinating and exciting eras of, and exciting eras in the history of music really right. to some extent with the experimentation that was going on so i really tried to hone in on certain types of electric guitar sounds exploring were keyboards going to be a part of it was the whirly was there a Rhodes? what are our sounds isn't there is there a rock organ in there somewhere what does our drum kit sound like is that different on different pieces what kind of electric bass sound do we want so in my early experiments i would do all those things and even down to the fact that you know when you run it through analog tape instead of just digitally recording it that's going to change the sound and i will add literally everything the entire score is recorded to tape really <laughs> we did the whole we did the whole thing to tape really we, we, no one does we, we that mastered anymore it. we mastered it to tape yeah no it was because it was i was really i was trying to be really hardcore about making sure that we were as authentic with it as possible so it's all everything's printed to tape and uh, it added a bit of time, especially in the mix, but I think it was worth it. Oh, I think that's fabulous. I, I, yeah. I, I sort yeah. of, I sort of picture people thinking, "What? What? Analog? No one does that." <laughs> we did it. We did it. <laughs> we definitely did it. It sounds like fun. It was so much fun, and you know, it's subtle, but it felt like a, a tremendous difference in the sound. It just, it just adds another dimension that you can't almost even. You know, explain, <laughs> but you feel it. So, yeah. so, so we're talking about electric guitars, and there's a very raw sound, I think, to some of that, yeah. which definitely applies to the Cruella version of our main character here. But then there's Estella, where we begin yes. the story, and I wonder if her music needed to be different somehow. Absolutely, absolutely, and the Estella 
Cruella kind of uh, duality that is central to the film. Interestingly, there is a, there's kind of an Estella motif that actually you hear really from the very beginning of the film, um, the Disney Castle logo, which is really an E minor kind of broken chord that, that follows its own progression. And uh, for example, on the, when they're driving to see a friend for help with her mother, you know, that car ride, you're hearing it with the piano. There's, I used a, a Rhodes kind of old mini bell piano thing that you sort of hear layered in there as well throughout the film. That's one of the first places you do hear some voices very, very quietly um, in the background texture. And also acoustic guitar early on in the film. The acoustic definitely gives way to electric pretty soon, <laughs> uh, but there's acoustic. And early on in the film, you, we also introduce strings. It's smaller groups of strings, more chamber kind of group of strings. And as things get darker and underway, um, it gives way to a very large or- orchestra, actually. You used the word architecture earlier in our conversation, and I wonder, is that something that you generally do, which is sort of plan out exactly how everything is going to develop so you start here, but you end here? Do you think that sort of through in advance? To the best of one's ability, <laughs> I think we do. It's uh, It definitely, um, as you work on these projects, they teach you things and you're constantly learning and you're constantly looking back at what you've done. It's a decidedly non-linear process. And that's actually wonderful because that being said, everything I do think is additive. Every moment of, of the process, every sense of discovery that you have is, is moving you forward. I don't think there's really backward steps in, in a creative process, frankly. I think everything is sort of forward motion, whether it looks that way or not at the time. But yeah, architecture-wise, there were moments in the film that you sort of mentally are sometimes drawn to early on in the process, you know, thinking about, okay, well, this is gonna be a key moment or like thinking about like the cliff, for example, there are certain places where you say, okay, even if it's just a sense of like, I wonder what I'm going to do there. (laughs) You know, there's certain things you sort of say, okay, let's think about that. And then thinking just about the story itself. And, and of course, talking with Craig, the composer director relationship is, is central to the entire process. What was that process like? And were you sort of sending Craig musical demos or prospective cues Uh, from a long distance, and then presumably the two of you would talk? So for me, I'm really a stickler for in-person collaboration, which made the pandemic era challenging. Um, But also I think for me it really actually just even further reaffirmed my belief that in-person collaboration is the key. You know, when I was experimenting, I would send things to L.A. and and talk to Craig, but actually early on we had had the conversation that, you know, I really felt it was important for me to be in Los Angeles and to be able to collaborate in the same city really was crucial. It's it's just one of those things where when you're in the same room, be it masked and tested, etc., but when you're in the same room, you know, you're able to you hear the same things and there are decisions and and ideas that over email would take a month and in the room it takes a minute. In one minute you can realize, "Oh wow, the director doesn't want this at all. (laughs) And you can immediately say, oh, but what about this? Or maybe, and you know, and there's a subtlety to that conversation, which is crucial. It could be that the piece is totally right, but the bass is too low. It could really be stuff like that. And actually on a very specific level with Craig, it was crucial for him that the score had a power. 
because he really wanted to make sure that it could match, you know, and kind of keep up with the songs, these big rock songs. So that's kind of why, like, being in the room and saying, oh, oh, you want a lot of edge on that guitar. Oh, let's turn the bass, you know, so we got to a point where I was like, oh, I need to turn the bass up like so much more. And then I would say, oh, I think I know what you're looking for here. Is this what you want? <laughs> you know, so, you know, you figure out that language and then you're able to make so much more progress. Yeah, and it's really, it's, it's just not only better in person, it's ideal in person. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think it's the only way to do it, but yeah. you know, the world doesn't always allow for that. So <laughs> you do your best. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Nicholas Britell's score for Cruella. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you want. Check out Cruella on Disney Plus and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed. I have to ask you about the Emma Thompson character, the Baroness. Yes. Did she need her own musical signature? Yes, 100%. And when you're talking about architecture and character, I mean, those, uh, early on I sort of said to myself, okay, we need something for Estella, we definitely need something for Cruella. And I felt as well we needed something for the Baroness. And interestingly, there's a fourth kind of musical thematic concept, which is really a Horace Jasper. It's her new family, you know, that that kind of a motif. And actually there's a fifth I would add, which is there's a sort of origin story, the true story of Cruella's birth theme, which you actually first hear hinted at in the Baroque ball. And then it obviously comes back later on in the film. But yeah, going back to the Baroness, I wanted to make sure that musically and with the instrumentation that she was fully distinct. And whereas with Cruella, there's this real, hopefully there's this kind of like dark rock, but with a sense of swagger and kind of, you know, intensity to Cruella. With the Baroness, with her theme, it's still, I still wanted it to feel legit because she's a legitimate nemesis here. Um, but at the same time, there's a slightly different era sound, I think. We were going slightly earlier, uh, maybe more of like a little bit more of a 60s sound. And her sound was the organ, so I used a, a B3. And she had this kind of motif with an organ and with, you know, drums. And you hear that early on, the sort of early black and white ball. I got that 60s vibe immediately as soon mm. as I as soon as I saw and heard her. I awesome. thought, yeah, I thought it, thought it was just great. And it distinguishes awesome. her. You know, in a way, she's not only the villain of the story, but there's something kind of cool about that music. And there has to be, because, you know, Cruella is aspiring to the Baroness's world, and she, she entrances Cruella early on, for sure. There, there's a magnetism there. And also, you know, our hero or our anti-hero, you know, also <laughs> needs a legit nemesis. You know, they, they both have to have a full-fledged musical universe for their relationship to be as intense as it is. <laughs> and it's interesting that you that you also decided that we needed something for the, the secondary characters, uh, the family. Those guys are hilarious in the movie. It's, it's just, you know, and I think, <laughs> exactly. the, I think the music helps to establish that. It definitely felt like we, we needed something for Horace and Jasper. And you brought up the humor, you know, they are so funny. And there are very specific moments with Wink, you know, for example. There are specific moments where we actually came up with a whole kind of 
instrumentational idea for what to do at those moments. Um, sort of these like little guitar bends. And, and actually, humor in music is such an infinitely complex subject. There's something about funny that when you try to be funny, it's not funny. Right. So you always have to be, you have to know that, you know, funny music isn't funny, you know. So oftentimes what's funny is just that the music is serious in counterpoint to something, which as you and I have talked about on Succession is is its own whole kind of universe. But with uh, with the humor here, it was just these little guitar bends or even like French horns at times and percussion, you know, and timpani felt sort of, you know, like it underlined things. So that was a whole set of work that we all did together. And, and, and just establishing the tone, which I think can be such a delicate balance when you're dealing with something that is both dark and, and amusing, it, it must have been an interesting challenge. It definitely was. And I think if there was any note from Craig that I would always be thinking about, it was that when in doubt, go darker. <laughs> that was his that was his one that was his one main uh, prescription to me. He would just, you know, if ever if ever it was a choice, he would say, Ah, I think it should be a little darker. I'd be like, Okay, we'll make it a little darker, you know. So that was the key was that everything had to like you were even saying, you know, it not just fit the character and not just treat Corell in the fullest scope possible, but also that it had that toughness and richness that the music of that era had. What were your favorite scenes to score in the movie? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question, actually. I love, I, I called it the serial scene, you know, the, the scene when she comes into Horace and Jasper in the morning when they're having breakfast and knocks over the cereal, you know, uh, that to me, that's sort of like your real appearance of this Cruella now. And that was very fun because it felt like it gave a musical opportunity to actually not just heighten, but really like evolve up until that point, the score certainly is still in a is is more Estella centric. It's more Estella Baroness centric, and once once she comes in that morning, it, it changes and it and the and it turns up a whole notch. Things get darker. There's a vocal element. I had multiple layers of pizzicato strings that were actually I would I would ask the musicians to like we would do different layers of how hard they were plucking at the strings. You call it like a percussive pizzicato. And if you layer that enough, you get this really kind of nasty, angry, biting kind of sound. But it's also, you know, it's a string pit, so it's got this, it's light and it's dark all at the same time. It's almost like your your entrance of a superhero in a sense, where you say, okay, here's the character and here's the theme and let's take it from here. And there's no going back from here. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> what would you say was the biggest challenge of the project? I think there were a lot of challenges, which is, I think in the beginning, which is what really attracted me to it. I, I always really hope that every project is different, and I, and I always want to be trying to do different things on every uh, film I take on. I think one challenge was definitely making sure that the score was matching with all of the rock, but also I think I was integrating orchestra and, and rock band certainly for me in, in a way that I had never done before at all. One challenge was definitely making sure that the score was matching with all of the rock, but also I think I was integrating orchestra and and rock band, certainly for me in, in a way that I had never, never done before at all. Um, so that was an interesting challenge was figuring out the final whole sequence, you know, the the arrival to the final you know, ball, the denouement of what, what happens with Cruel and the Baroness. That whole sequence is essentially like, I think it's about 13 straight minutes of music as basically a large orchestra with rock 
suite, in a sense, that had to be perfectly tailored. And I think for me, not just figuring out all the moments of that, because there are lots of moments there that are very serious, and then there's humor and balancing that, but also just, uh, you know, maintaining a sense of rhythm and momentum, figuring out the right character moments. There were many variables there that I was trying to, to maintain cohesiveness through the climax. Did you record the rock band material separately from the orchestral stuff? Yes, we did. Not only did I record the, the band separate, but even within the band, I made sure that I had separation of all the elements because especially for the final mix, I wanted to make sure that I gave them enough flexibility where, okay, you know, this, this guitar might be really powerful, so let's make sure you can lower that. And when you lower that, you're not also lowering the whole orchestra, for example. So it was, it was a lot about making sure that we had full great takes of things, but also the ability to do stems. So I have to ask you about the song at the end of the movie. Talk to me about Florence and the Machine, whose idea it was to bring her in, and did you collaborate on the song? Yes, yeah, so from early on in the process, uh, we had talked about the idea of there probably should be a song because it's Cruella DeVille, but how do you do that in a way where, you know, it's 2021, what is Cruella's song for this Cruella? And I had demoed out an, an idea early on, but it was, an, it was just an exploration. We were so focused on the score. And as we got closer to the final mix, everyone really came on board with the idea uh, and got really passionate about, let's, let's make this happen. And actually, I had met Florence's manager quite a few years ago in London, and just serendipitously, Disney had also talked about the idea of Florence, and it just felt like this kind of amazing serendipity there. But I'd never met Florence before. And again, because of pandemic, etc., we met remotely, we FaceTimed, <laughs> and I sent the, these, these musical ideas. Um, Florence was able to imagine the lyrics, and uh, we worked with a, a couple other wonderful collaborators as well, among them Tora Stinson, who's an incredible songwriter as well. And basically, she recorded with, actually with the same rock musicians that we had recorded the score. She recorded in London, I was in New York at the time, so there was a lot of logistics in making this all come together. But I can't say enough about Florence, she's incredible. And it was really, it was actually just a blast, you know, being able to work with someone who has such in incredible gifts and who is so musical um, and has so many ideas. And I think in the future, it'd be just great to be able to be in the same studio. <laughs> but, but it was, yeah, it was amazing how we were able to put it together in, in this kind of long distance way. And her delivery is delicious. It's amazing, yeah, I love that. <laughs> Um, I sometimes wonder, when you were at Juilliard or at Harvard, did you ever imagine you'd be writing rock songs with the likes of Florence and the Machine? <laughs> you know, <not laughs> I think I, I dreamed of being able to collaborate with people. But honestly, I think, when, especially when I was younger, it felt like a far off, almost like distant kind of fantasy, the idea of being able to being able to actually do this for a living, being able to actually work on projects like this and collaborate with someone like Lawrence, that I think that did probably, that would have been like a dream scenario. And I think what's so wonderful is when you're actually doing it, it does not lessen how fun it is, you know, <laughs> in the least. It's like the, I think, uh, 
I think that's one of the most like sort of affirming elements of all this, which is that with the right teams and the right people and the right projects, you know, this can be such a joyful experience. Let's take a, a, a minute and talk about your current series, The Underground Railroad. I wonder if you could talk for a second about reuniting with Barry Jenkins, with whom you've had such a, a strong and I think creative collaboration through the years. Talk a little bit about the ambition of this series and what your role was as composer. I mean, this is a project that um, I feel so lucky to be a part of it, and I feel so lucky to have met Barry Jenkins, uh, you know, years ago and to be able to collaborate with him. For me, it was the largest scale creative work I've ever been a part of, and I almost can't even imagine doing something of that scope ever again, because what really distinguishes this project, I think, is that every episode really takes us virtually into a different world. And so it's orders of magnitude more involved to create that many different musical landscapes and then to weave them together. You know, we were talking about architecture. And I think that with Underground Railroad, I would say it felt like we were making seven movies, basically. And so there were different states, literally, but also to different states of mind, different states of consciousness. And then to be able to attempt to realize that, that's the excitement, but really the challenge. You were profiled recently in the New York Times Magazine as someone who's forging new paths in film music from your use of, of hip-hop elements to electronic processing of traditional sounds. Do you feel that film music maybe has stagnated a little bit and needs a contemporary fresh twist to sort of keep it valid and alive? I, I don't think it's stagnant. I think film music is an amazing art form. It's a young art form, uh, but it is an art form nonetheless. I think things go in cycles and there are always, there are different eras of film music, um, but the sound of film music is always changing, you know, as films change themselves, as television changes, as, as you know, visual media really, I guess, changes because everything is sort of, the boundaries are blurring, I feel, these days with changing technology. I feel it's just an incredibly exciting time. I think you have amazing artists who are uh, entering the field, you have amazing people who are in the field already. Um, and I think that, if anything, this, you know, it's, it's just a huge open, open door for new ideas and new sounds. I, I actually find it fascinating to see those changes so what are you on to next? What can we look forward to in the months to come? Well, at, right now, at this exact moment, I'm actually working on Succession Season 3. So I'm very focused on that. And I'm um, also, I've begun working with Adam McKay on a new film he's shot called Don't Look Up. So those are my two very near-term focuses. Well, Nick, it's been so much fun to talk with you about these projects today and about your, your overview of film music and, and the exciting things that you've brought us lately and are going to continue to bring uh, us. And so I can only thank you for being a part of this today. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, John. It's always just fantastic to speak with you. And uh, I hope to you know see you again very soon. In person. Let's make sure we're in person. In person. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank exactly. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It would also be great if you could rate it, because that really helps others find the series. Check out Cruella on Disney+, and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed.